Many men, all right. So this morning's sermon has been on my heart for a while. I actually started working on it over a year ago, but then everything took place with COVID, and there were the uh, many interruptions associated with that, including even that whole series on wisdom and knowledge, then some sermons on baptism and, and circumcision recently leading up to the baptisms, and then there were other sermons that surfaced, and this is the first break where I've really thought we could um, revisit this or dig back into the sermon that I had been working on. And I was working on it in anticipation of preaching on the vision of our church. So every few years, I revisit these sermons about the vision of our church, and it surprised me how long it had been. I expected to do that every three or four years, and the last time was January 2014, so over seven years ago. So we're definitely due to talk about this again. This sermon will get into the vision of our church somewhat, but it's going to help set up those sermons, uh, lay really a foundation for them and the importance of, of vision. You might have to wait till next week to see that more clearly. Since we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, I want to remind you of a few important verses I've shared before, so I will go through them quickly about the Old Testament's uh, importance to our lives as believers. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, these things in the Old Testament took place as examples for us, and they happened to Israel as an example, and they were written down for our instruction. Romans 15, 4, the Old Testament was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So the New Testament is very clear that we are to learn from the Old Testament and that the accounts that are contained are for our instruction um, and to admonish us. I've told you before that people look at the Old Testament and they'll wonder what they're supposed to learn from it. I believe that one of the main reasons the Old Testament is neglected is people look at these accounts, they look at them physically, and they see no real application for, for their lives. And I would say that physically speaking, there is very little, if any, application for our lives in many of these accounts. For example, if you take your minds to the books of Kings and Chronicles, and there's a king over a nation, typically Israel or Judah, and his nation is being attacked by another nation. Well, we put ourselves in his place, and we know that we're never going to rule over a nation and then be attacked by some surrounding nation, and so we sort of say, well, what does this have to do with me? Um, what am I supposed to learn from this? This is not ever going to happen in my life. The books were in this morning, Joshua and Judges. Think about them for a moment. You kind of read them, and you say, well, God's never going to give me some physical land that I'm supposed to enter into and then exterminate all of the wicked people who live there, so what am I supposed to learn from this? And so because of that, people say, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and plant myself in the Gospels, right? I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to keep reading the epistles, which is a wonderful thing, but 76% of the Bible is the Old Testament, and like we just talked about from 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 15, wonderful truths God wants us to learn from them. Well, if we will apply to the Old Testament something I have invited you to apply to the reading of the Gospels, I believe we will get much more from the Old Testament, and this is what I mean. One of the mistakes that people can make with the Gospels is the same mistake they make with the Old Testament, which is taking what's physical and trying to apply it physically versus spiritually. So, for example, Jesus heals physical blindness or physical deafness. Is, is that uh, supposed to make us think that he's going to heal every physically blind or deaf person? No. So we don't look at it and draw away application physically, but we do spiritually because what Jesus was doing physically is a picture or type of what he wants to do for us spiritually. So when Jesus heals someone's physical blindness, it's a picture of what he wants to do in healing our spiritual blindness or allowing us to be able to see and understand spiritual truths. When he heals someone's uh, physical deafness, it doesn't mean he's going to heal every deaf person, but he does want us to be able to hear and understand spiritual truths. Raise someone from the dead. You look at what happened with Lazarus. That doesn't mean that Jesus is going to want to heal every person that dies right when they die or, a few, or three days later, but it is a picture, beautiful picture at that, of God wanting, Christ wanting to raise us to newness of life or bring us to life spiritually out of our, out of our spiritual deadness. Well, if you take that same principle and apply it to the Old Testament, you'll, you can, it's, it's really, in a sense, it's like a new lens through which you can read the Old Testament through. It's almost a paradigm shift that people need to make where they begin applying the physical accounts in the Old Testament spiritually. So if we talk about <clears throat> kings for a moment, when kings were um, forced to defend their nations from enemies that were attacking them, we're not going to be attacked by other nations, but do we have enemies that we contend with? 
are there enemy, enemies that we must defeat? I mean, the, the nation of Israel might be battling against Babylon and Assyria and Syria, and we're battling against the world, the devil, and the flesh. You can look at the way that these kings responded to those enemies when they were attacked to see how we should respond to the enemies that we face when we're attacked. You can look at a king, and if he turned to the, many of them turned to the Lord in a way where you could almost identically turn to the Lord when facing an enemy in your life. You can look at kings, and when they turned to another nation or to Egypt or to the world for help, look and see what you shouldn't do when you face an enemy or when you're attacked that you shouldn't turn where for help? To the world, to psychology, to the world's philosophies that we should turn to the Lord as, as these kings did or don't do um, as those kings did when they, you know, we sh- as, when they turn to the Lord that we should do that and when they turn to the world an example of what we shouldn't do when facing enemies. Now for this morning, let's kind of focus in or press into the books of Joshua and Judges, which is where we'll be and consider what application these books have for us. Now, some, some of what I've shared up to this point is, is inferred. It's implied in Scripture versus being spelled out for us. But the beauty of the promised land as recorded in Joshua and Judges is not even something that we need to... Uh, it's not implied. It's, it's not something that we need to sort of figure out that that's the case. The book of Hebrews, and in chapters 3 and 4 in particular reveal this spiritual application for us. So uh, kind of a simple way to say it is the way that the nation of Israel lived in the promised land is a picture or type of our lives in Christ. Hebrews 3 and 4 spells this, this out for us, and this brings us to lesson one. The promised land is a picture of our spiritual rest in Christ. The promised land is a picture of our spiritual rest in Christ. I think you would be, you know, you've heard me say before, when Abraham sacrifices Isaac, if you don't look deeper in that account and see God the Father sacrificing God the Son, or you don't see Christ's sacrifice in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac, you're missing the true and greater reality that God wants to reveal to us. Well, similarly, I would say if you were to read the book of Joshua, or you, were, you would see the Israelites entering the promised land, and you would not look deeper than that, you would not look beyond the physical to the spiritual, which I believe Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us to do, then you're missing the true and greater significance or reality that the promised land presents to us, which is that it is a picture or type of our spiritual lives in Christ. Let me give you some verses that support this. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Genesis, or to, excuse me, Joshua 21. Look with me at verse 44. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Look one chapter to the right at chapter 22, verse 4. The Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as promised. And so you can see from these verses that God gave the promised land to the nation of Israel so that it would provide them with what? Not a trick question. With rest. It would be a place of rest for them when the enemies were removed. And the physical rest that the promised land offered the nation of Israel serves as a picture or type of the spiritual rest that we are offered in Christ. Probably the clearest verses um, revealing this invitation to experience this rest is not in Hebrews 3 and 4, but in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, when Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, if you, now, um, so we hear Christ inviting us into that spiritual rest that the promised land only served as a picture or type of. Keeping in mind that the promised land is this picture or type of our spiritual lives in Christ, look at Joshua 13, verse 1, through that lens with me. Keeping in mind what we just talked about, look at Joshua chapter 13, verse 1 with me. Joshua was old, he was advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years, so coming to the very end of his 25 years over the nation of Israel, and there remains yet very much land to possess. Do you see your relationship 
with Christ through that verse, or how this verse beautifully reveals the same spiritual reality. Any, any Christian, no matter how mature, you take the most mature Christian you know, who has walked with the Lord longer than anyone that you've ever met and seems to have all of the answers to the questions that you ask, would there still be room for them to grow in Christ? Would there still be more for them to possess? Would there still be more for them to pursue? Absolutely. The Lord could say to them the same thing that, that he says here to Joshua. And so if, you, if you're reading the book of Joshua and not seeing your relationship with Christ through it, then you're missing what God wants to reveal to you. We receive Christ spiritually the same way the nation of Israel received the promised land physically. Let me say that one more time. We receive Christ spiritually the same way the nation of Israel received the promised land physically. How was, or actually, let's back up. Let's go back 40 years before Israel entered into the promised land. Why were they not able to enter? Because of unbelief. Why are, what it would prevent any person from ever entering in or being in Christ? It would be unbelief. You receive Christ the same way that the nation of Israel received the promised land. You remember people couldn't enter because of that unbelief. Nobody finds themselves in Christ if they are unbelieving. Israel owned all the land, and this is what's particularly interesting. They owned all the land, but they hadn't yet possessed all of it. Similarly, Ephesians 1, 3, the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So we own all of these spiritual blessings. They have been given to us through Christ, but we always have more of Christ to possess, more of those uh, blessings to pursue. In their pursuit, they kept encountering these different enemies that had to be defeated. In our pursuit to possess all the blessings that we have in Christ, what do we keep encountering? We keep encountering enemies that must be defeated. The Israelites are facing the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites. We face the devil, the world, and the flesh. You will not, I don't know if I'm the only one, I suspect I'm not, that has felt this way. You make it through one battle, spiritually speaking, in the Christian life. You, you know, you've just wiped off your forehead and caught your breath, and then what? It's, it's time to go into another battle. It looks very much like the Israelites as they're moving through the promised land. You get a little season, a little break, but then there's another enemy to face, and God would look at you, and he would say the same thing that he says to Joshua, even if you come to the end of your life. You've been walking with the Lord all this time, and God never says, okay, now just relax, and there's no more battles to fight. No, he says there's still much land to possess. There's still, still more of, uh, of the enemy that needs to be defeated or exterminated, and so you can't give up yet, and that's what life is like for us on this side of heaven. We never arrive we never reach the point where we can lay down our weapons and say the battle is over for us. There's no more, there's nothing more to conquer. It just doesn't work like that. It's very much like Israel in the promised land. Now, let me pause this discussion for a moment. Hold on to that, and I'll share something else with you. If you get an elevated view of the historical books, which when I say the historical books, I mean Genesis, uh, all the way through Esther, so not into the poetic books of Psalms and Proverbs and not into the prophets, but those historical books which really give us the history of the nation of Israel. There are other nations that are mentioned, but primarily they're only mentioned as they come into contact with Israel. And why is there such a focus on the nation of Israel? Because they are the nation through whom God is going to bring the Messiah or his son into the world, and so they are, end up being the focus. Now, as these, as these historical books, or we could say, as the history of Israel is recorded for us, hopefully you've noticed that each book picks off where the previous book left off. So Exodus picks up where Genesis left off. Leviticus picks up where Exodus left off. Numbers picks up where Leviticus left off. And so because of that, these historical books are almost like one big book with each of those books serving as a chapter of this larger book containing the history of the nation of Israel. And, and some of the books, like the first five books of the Bible, they actually were originally one book versus being, they were the book of Moses. We see them as five books or the Pentateuch or even, or the Torah, different names for that one book, which we've broken up into five books. Now, as you're reading through these historical books, and I just told you that they pick up where the previous one left off, with the exception of maybe a couple like Ruth and Esther, 
That is the case, but there is one break. There is one conclusion of one book and beginning of another book where the change between these two books is so sharp, so strong, that you could almost wonder if you're missing something. You're not. But you could wonder that because there's such a dramatic change between these two books, you'd almost wonder if there should be another book inserted between the two of them explaining why this book, the Israelites are experiencing so many victories, and then in the following book, they end up experiencing so many defeats. And that's the break between the books of Joshua and Judges. It wouldn't be too much to say that the book of Joshua, with a few small exceptions like their defeat of Ai, is largely a record of Israel's victories as they're making their way through the promised land, defeating enemy after enemy after enemy, experiencing victory after victory after victory. You leave the book of Joshua and you go into Judges, and what is it? Basically the opposite, isn't it? With the exception of a few victories, usually victories they had to experience after being very defeated or beat up by that enemy, It is a cycle of defeats that the nation of Israel experiences. So in a sense, the books are very polarizing. It's as much as Joshua is a book of the victories of the nation of Israel, Judges is basically a record of the defeats of the nation of Israel. Now, keeping in mind those verses that I shared with you earlier in the sermon, that 1 Corinthians 10 or Romans 15 tells us that these things are recorded for our instruction When we see such a sharp and strong contrast or change between two books, we should ask ourselves why that occurs. When we see something that dramatic take place, we should investigate, and we should wonder how the nation of God's people could go so quickly from victories to defeats. And we get our answer in Judges chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and turn there with me. Judges chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 7. It says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders followed Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Now, if you pause right there, this is somewhat of a bittersweet verse, isn't it? There's sweet in it. What's the sweet? That they served the Lord... What's the bitter? It says all the days of Joshua and the elders who outlived him. And so there's much to be encouraged about in this verse, but then there's also kind of this nagging question of, well, what happened uh, after those days when Joshua and the elders have have passed away? And we get the answer to that in the following verses. Look in verse 8. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, He died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of the inheritance in Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Geash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And now watch them go from victory to defeat. Verse 11, The people of Israel, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So now, let's dig into these verses and figure out what led to this dramatic change in the history of the nation of Israel, or a simple way to say it is what brought them from victory after victory to defeat after to defeat. And if we look back at verse 10, we can see two of the things that went wrong with this new generation. Actually, give me a touch. Maybe I didn't explain this clearly enough. And just in case I didn't or you didn't notice it from the verses, there's essentially the passing or passing away of one generation. A generation dies, which would be the generation that had been under the leadership of Moses, then under the leadership of Joshua, and some of the elders that had outlived Joshua, but it seems by, not by very much. And now there's this new generation that rises up And that's the generation in view. This is the generation under Moses and Joshua that experienced the victories. This is the new generation that's going to experience the defeats. And we see two of the reasons this was the case for them. If you look at verse 10 with me, 
What is the first thing listed that reveals why they moved from victories to defeats? It's not a trick question. You can look there in the verse. What does it say? I'd like you to see it with your eyes. What does it say? They what? Yeah, they did not know the Lord. Oh, that sounds odd, doesn't it? Because you say, well, how, how could they not have known of him? That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that they didn't know of God. It means they didn't know God personally. They, this is Old Testament or even New Testament language. I think it's in Galatians 4 where, where Paul says it's an issue of whether God knows you. Knowing in such an intimate way is, uh, is synonymous with, a, with salvific language or a saving relationship. And so when it says that they didn't know God, it doesn't mean that they didn't know of him. It simply means that they were not saved. It means that the nation of Israel was filled with many unbelievers, or this new generation at least, largely consisted of unbelievers. And this brings us to the first part of lesson two. Israel moved from victory to defeat because they did not, part one, know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord personally like their fathers did. Now, in our vision for WCC, what would be some of the things that, that we desire? And I suspect you could guess some of them. We want to see strong marriages. We want to see strong families. We want to see unity. We want to see a strong view of complementarianism or of men being spiritual leaders in their homes or recognizing that men and women have different roles and responsibilities. They play out differently in the home and in the church. We want to see... Uh, um, strong outreach, which is an area where I believe that we're, we're growing, but has not historically been that strong for us. We want to see people that are joyful, that serve, and that, you know, the list could kind of go on, <clears throat> but I'd say this. All those things, and even many more that we could add to the list, pale in comparison to this one foundational desire that we have for the people who attend Woodland Christian Church, which is what? That they are believers, or that they are saved. How significant would it be if we had all these other things and we didn't have that? We, we, we would have the church in, in Revelation that Jesus says is, is alive but dead. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means they're a happening, thriving church, physically speaking, but they were dead spiritually. They were unregenerate. A, 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 a church that, that has a great reputation for you know, all the things that they're doing, but is filled with a bunch of unsaved people. I mean, how terrible would that be? And so before anything else, we would desire to learn this lesson from the nation of Israel that we would have a church of people who are born again or, or who are saved. And, and I'd go so far as to say, if we had all those other things and we didn't have saved people, we wouldn't have anything to boast about. And I take that from Jeremiah 9.23, where Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. Now, we're not supposed to boast. That's uh, antithetical to the gospel or to being a disciple of Christ. That's associated with pride, and we are to be humble. But it seems to me if there is something you can boast about, it is that you understand God and that you know him, which is to say you have a relationship with him. Now, no matter how much I might enjoy teaching the word, which I thoroughly do, it's, it cannot be my strongest desire simply to share uh, about God to you. It isn't enough to just teach you about God. I must have a stronger desire as your pastor for you to know God. One of the things that occurred to me this past week, and I might revisit this in the future because I don't, I don't know if I'm just noticing. See, here's the thing. I don't know if, if social media is just happens to bring things to our attention that we wouldn't know otherwise or it happens to be happening more frequently. It seems to me that it's happening more frequently that people are committing apostasy. This past week, a few days ago, he wasn't a gentleman that I had heard of, but he seemed to be fairly prominent. In some of the articles I read, he was, he was called uh, a well-known well author, maybe speaker, who'd been writing for Desiring God. I think his name was Paul Maxwell. He commits apostasy, and he turns from Christ. You can put him in that, in that list of people like Josh Harris recently. Well, when this man or when Josh Harris committed apostasy, are these people who could tell you many things about God? They could, yes. 
they, they probably know the Bible better than many Christians do. But to know about God or to be able to recount Bible stories is not the same as knowing God. They had been able to successfully enough for a long enough period of time fool people into thinking that they knew God simply because of their ability to recount these, these accounts in Scripture. And so, as, a, as your pastor, while I love to be able to tell you about God, my strongest desire is that you would know Him. So how can we see that happen at WCC? Well, I and the other teachers in the church, we cannot change your hearts. We can't convert you. We can't persuade you into getting saved. We can't appeal to you strongly enough emotionally. To, and even, I'm not very confident in emotional responses, because generally when someone has an emotional response, we notice that statistically, those people do not continue to be following the Lord after those emotions have subsided. They're just kind of riding that wave of emotion, and when that emotion is gone, then they know that then, then there's no heart. I can't say there's no longer a heart for Christ, because that's kind of the point. There hadn't been a heart for Christ in the first place. So what we can do is we can preach the, the gospel precisely, we can preach it accurately, we can tell you about your spiritual condition, that you are a sinner, we can explain justification, and the gospel has the power to go forward and to change people's hearts and to convert them. And so that would be one of our strong desires here, is that the gospel would, it would not be softened or smoothed down, it would be able to have all the corners that it's supposed to have on it, that it can rub people the wrong way, that it can be as offensive as the gospel is supposed to be, that it, that it would not be made uh, more palatable for anyone, and it could just be delivered, and then it could cause the conversion and regeneration that it's supposed to in people's hearts. The second thing uh, I would say is that's part of our desire here at WCC is for fathers to be preaching the gospel to their children. If you're a parent, your children need to be hearing the gospel from you, and they need to be hearing it from you regularly. You cannot talk your children into going to heaven, but what you can do is you can share the gospel with them, and then the, the Holy Spirit can work in their hearts to bring them to salvation. So I would say like this, it's our vision at WCC that parents preach the gospel to their children regularly. And then also, hopefully, we can model the gospel through our faithfulness to Christ. Now, I will be the first one to raise my hand and say that there have been times in my life where I was not the representative of Christ that I should have been, or times I can look back on with regret and wish that I had handled things differently, and, and that I would have been ashamed, perhaps, even if people had known I was a Christian at that moment because I didn't respond the way that I should have. And maybe others, maybe all of us at some, some points in our lives look back and wish that as Christ's followers we'd have handled some things better or differently. But with that said, hopefully there's enough faithfulness in our lives that even when we're not preaching the gospel verbally, in a sense we're preaching the gospel through the way we live, that there are people who can see our lives, there's something different about us, and people can know we're Christians through our actions without us having to, to say that to people. I, there's a kind of a saying, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. I don't think I've said that very much because I don't really like the saying very much because in the Bible people preach the gospel with words and they looked for opportunities to do so and Romans 10 makes it very clear that the gospel must be preached with words and so while it kind of sounds good to say preach the gospel and use words when necessary, uh, it doesn't convey what the Bible conveys which is primarily you preach the gospel with words. With that said, we would also hope that our lives could be testimonies of Christ, right? And that people would come to know him, or, or maybe not come to know him, but at least come to be aware that Christ is alive in us, so we would have the opportunity to then preach Christ with words. Now, go ahead and look back at verse 10 for the second thing that's listed. It says, they didn't know the work that God had done for Israel. They didn't know the work that God had done for Israel, and this could almost look like it's saying the same thing as the previous part of the verse, that Israel didn't know the Lord, but it is saying something different here. These words mean that this generation did not know what God had done. Now, just follow me for a moment. Because the Bible, uh, let's say the Old, let's focus on the Old Testament. 4,000 years of human history records the highlights you could almost get the impression that people in the Old Testament are sort of walking along and a miracle here, a miracle there. They live these, these very supernatural lives and it's like, they could, you know, it's like to wake up and see a miracle is no big deal for them because they're experiencing them constantly. That was not the case at all. 
the people in the Old Testament largely lived exactly like I do and like you do, which is by faith and not by sight. There were really only two seasons in the entire Old Testament of tremendous supernatural activity, and that was the days of Moses and Joshua, which we're reading about just now concluding. The generation under them saw the miraculous um, more frequently than, than any of us or in a way that none of us will ever know. You've got to fast forward centuries to the days of Elijah and Elisha before you see another season of supernatural activity in the Old Testament. And then you've got to fast forward from Elijah and Elisha to the Gospels to see another season of supernatural activity, which is the, the first advent of Christ himself, which definitely is not something that we're going to normatize and think would be the case for all of church history. So besides these three seasons, the people that live in between these seasons here, here, and here in the church age are living without witnessing all of the supernatural. We're not seeing these miracles, uh, but they didn't either. Most of the people throughout the Old Testament did not either. But the people in view that just died, that old generation under Moses and Joshua, what did they witness? That's, that's an understatement. What did they experience? The plagues raining down on Egypt and their safety while they're in Goshen. The parting of the Red Sea and then walking between those two, those two walls of water on each side and then watching those waves crash down on the Egyptian army. Moving into the wilderness and then seeing bread come down from heaven, the manna, and witnessing a rock being struck and then water uh, shooting forth from it. I mean, that is unbelievable. I cannot imagine what it would look like to witness even one of those miracles. That generation that witnessed all that just died, and now another generation just came up that saw none of that, that experienced none of that. They are pretty much in the exact same situation that we are in, that, we, that they had to hear about these things, but they never witnessed any of them perfectly or personally. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. Israel moved from victory to defeat because they did not remember what the Lord had done. They did not remember what the Lord had done. They did not know these things for themselves. Now, if we're saved, which is to say we know the Lord, we should also want to know what he has done. Let me say one more time, because verse 10 has a very nice progression to it. Judges 2.10 has a very nice progression. If you know the Lord, you're also going to want to know what the Lord has done and I see two ways that this applies for us. First, we should know what God has done for Israel. That's what the verse says. It says that this generation didn't know what God had done for Israel, and we should know what God has done for Israel. And then second, it's almost saying that they did, we should also know what God has done for us. They didn't remember the things the Lord had done. We should remember the things that the Lord has done, not just for Israel, but for ourselves. Let's talk about each of these. We should know what God has done for Israel, and when I say that, what does that basically mean? We should know the word. Whoever said that, that's, I couldn't say it better than that. We should know the word because to know the word is to know the record of what God has done for Israel. Sometimes people get saved. They don't grow in their knowledge and understanding of God. Their theology is poor. They talk about God, but they don't know what they're talking about. The other morning, at our, or yesterday morning at our, at our group, I don't remember exactly who said it, but a young man or maybe it was a Saturday before, but a young man shared about an interview that he had witnessed where there was a woman who meant well. She, you know, the microphone was put in her face and she kind of praises Christ. And then someone presses her a little bit to ask her, perhaps even genuinely or sincerely, why she had this affection for Christ or wanted to live for him. And that's when you started cringing because she couldn't really respond. She didn't really know why she believed. She didn't really know what she believed. She didn't really know why Jesus was so great. So while I could appreciate her enthusiasm, it wasn't her zeal. It wasn't coupled with knowledge or truth. And so then she, to be honest, it sounds like she, based, she looked foolish. And so it's not enough just to be, be zealous or have some fervor for Christ without that being combined with truth. I mean, that's why Jesus tells the woman at the well, he says, you don't know what you worship. 
It is not combined with truth. I must be worshipped in spirit, which is to say worship is something that happens spiritually in the heart. Our relationship is not a, our relationship with the Lord is not a physical one. We don't bow down to statues like most other religions. It's a spiritual one, and the spirit must be combined with the truth, which is to say we must know the God that we are worshiping, or else we probably are not even worshiping the God that we think we are worshiping. And that means to know the Bible. That means to know the Word. So it is our vision at WCC that people know what God has done by teaching the Word faithfully. Generations are coming up, and this verse, verse 10, could very well describe some of the generations that are coming up today or have already come up that don't know the work that the Lord has done for Israel. They're not any better than the generation and judges here. And why is that? Simply put, people don't want to read the Bible. Churches don't want to preach the Bible. And why don't they want to preach the Bible? It is not glamorous enough. It is not entertaining enough. It is too boring it's not relevant. It could be too controversial. You could be condemning something, and then when someone hears you say that this is sinful or, or worse, wicked, which can be a more accurate description of many of the things we see, those people aren't going to want to come back to church next week. If that's all you're giving them is the Word of God, then there's little chance of them returning. And so as a result, many other things end up replacing the simple preaching and exposition of God's Word. It could be videos, and I'm not, I'm not down on any or all videos. I can see a place for them, but they, should be, they would be used to supplement the Word of God, not, not to take the place of it. You can kind of tell I'm not a big video guy, considering I don't know that I've ever actually shown one during a worship service before. If it's not videos, then it's going to be theatrics. It can be plays. It can be skits. One service we sat in in California, we remember there was interpretive dance, there's got to be some dog and pony show, because if we don't preach the Word of God, then it's just not going to cut it for these people. They will not want to return. And one of the problems for these churches is when that's their desire, they have to continually improve on that. Because if that's what has brought the people in the door, then the only thing that's going to get them to return is something that's a little better than the last week. And so these church leaders are always having to strive to find something that's more dynamic, more entertaining. And one of, one of the wonderful blessings for me, I, I don't even think that what I'm talking about is, is really a local problem. I hope more I might be equipping you to be able to respond to others because the fact that you come here shows you're not looking for a dog and pony show because I, I know that I'm not the most dynamic speaker and I don't think you've ever gotten one when you've been here. But the blessing for me is this. Because you have been content to simply receive God's word, there's never been one week of studying or sermon preparation that I ever thought I had to improve on what I was delivering. Now I can improve on my delivery, which is to say I can improve as a preacher, but I never thought I could improve on what I'm delivering to you because I never thought I could improve on God's word. And you never wanted me to. So I've never sat there and thought, well, I need to give them something that I can't, or they want something that I can't provide. That's never been the case because when we're talking about the Word of God, and if that's what people want, then you can come and you can give that to them, feed that to them each week, and you never have to worry about spicing it up, because that's the most wonderful or thrilling thing for, for people to receive, at least people who are saved, at least people who are regenerate. That's what they crave, because they want to be fed. They hunger and thirst, spiritually speaking. Now, the other thing that we'll see sometimes is when the Word, even if the Word of God is preached, it seems like there must be something attached to it, something in the culture. Here's kind of the buzzword, contemporary, or the other buzzword is relevant. So then if pastors are going to preach a sermon, and I might even be using that phrase sermon loosely, it's got to be tied to social media, or it's got to be tied to the newest movie, or it's got to be tied to the newest sports team, or it's got to be tied to some celebrity simply because the word of God is not going to cut it for these people. And one of the terrible tragedies associated with this is you end up with a generation that's coming up, they know more about the Avengers than they know about the Word of God. And part of the information that they're receiving, it's not coming from the media, it's, it's not coming from their friends, it's coming from the pulpit. It's coming from the church that they attend. They're learning all these things that, that not only have absolutely no spiritual benefit for them, but are probably spiritually detrimental to them. 
And the issue is not that this is reaching them out there. The issue is that it's reaching them in here, where the Word of God should be preached. Now, second, along with knowing what God has done for Israel, because we can listen to this, and this is the part where I became convicted, we can think about how churches are not teaching people what God has done for Israel, but the part that became convicted for me, convicting for me is I looked at this and I thought, the Israelites forgot what God had done for them. I'm forgetting what God has done for me. I am not doing a good job keeping track of the wonderful things that God has done in my own life. When I see that this new generation forgot what God had done for them, it makes me want to remember what God has done for me and pass that along to my children. I want my children to remember what God has done for the LaPierre family. On Saturday mornings, as I've been meeting with this, these young men, the, name, the, the title of the book is Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And there's basically a chapter for each discipline, disciplines that you would expect. Prayer, Bible reading, uh, evangelism, worship, service. And there was the last chapter, which uh, sort of surprised me. I was interested to see how Dr. Whitney was going to defend this, was journaling. He listed journaling as a spiritual discipline. And the argument or the part of his argument that was strongest or most convicted me about keeping a journal is this. Being prevented from forgetting what God has done. And when I read that, I thought, how tragic it is that there are so many things that God has done for me in my life that I have forgotten. Now, generally, if there is something profound or significant, whether it's a story or an illustration or something that I read, I've never been a big journaler. What I do is I add it to my sermon notes so that if I preach on that passage, I'll put it near an accompanying passage or related passage so that I have it there should I preach on that sermon, but I still might not, might not remember that. And so as a family the other night, we sat down and we were discussing different prayers that God has answered for us. It was this very wonderful, sweet time. We tried to conclude the, the day as a family, as hopefully the children mellowing out before uh, prayer and then, and then going to bed, spending time together uh, in the living room. And we were talking about the different things that God has done for us and some of the things that Katie shared. And this is, this is what really grieved me. Some of the things she shared were things that had happened within the last few years and I had already forgotten them. I was listening to her talk about things God had done, and I thought, wow, how wonderful is that? What, what a beautiful memory that is. At that time, she shared two instances where we talked about something, and then it seemed the very next day God did it or resolved it for us. Or another way to say it is we saw a very clear resolution or answer to prayer or God working associated with what we talked about, put before him, and then he revealed how the direction or brought resolution to it the following day. And I thought, how sad that I'm going to forget these things. And so if we don't want to be like this generation in Israel's day, let's be talking about God as a family, not just talking about God, but what he has done for us, passing these things along to our children, reminding them of the wonderful, um, you know, these wonderful testimonies, and probably keeping track of them ourselves so that we don't forget. Now, the third reason that the nation of Israel went from victory to defeat I'd like you to look at the beginning of the chapter. Look at Judges 2. We'll start at verse 1. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohem, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall, and then notice this, make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So they were told not to associate with the surrounding nations. They did anyway. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. Israel moved from victory to defeat because they did not, part three, remain holy. Israel moved from victory to defeat because they did not remain holy. I've told you before, it's best not to think of the word holy as synonymous with righteous. Do not associate holiness and synonymous as, or holiness and righteous or righteousness as synonymous words. Instead, think holy or holiness as separate or set apart. If you happen to associate holiness with righteousness, you're going to be confused when you read about inanimate, non-living things being holy, such as the ground that Moses walked on. 
or the nation of Israel being the holy land. That derives its name from Scripture. And so then you're going to say, well, does that mean that land is more righteous or the ground that Moses walked on is better or more righteous as though there's some other unrighteous land? No, it's just that it's set apart or it's separated from the other land of the world. Um, it's sacred. It's being used by God for his purposes. Now, with that in mind, if you understand that holy means separate or set apart, you can see how Israel stopped being holy because God had told them to be separate or set apart from the surrounding nations, but you can see in these verses that they decided to associate with them or they decided to have relationships with them. And so then you can say, well, and we should ask ourselves, well, why would Israel do that? Why, if they were commanded to wipe out these people, and you would almost think that Israel would want to do that so that they would have all the land for themselves, why would they keep many of these Canaanites around? Why would they disobey God and in the process seem to do themselves a disservice? Well, the answer, look, one chapter to the left, at Judges chapter 1. Do your Bibles have a heading right around verses 27 and 28? Your Bible, in Judges chapter 1, around verses 27, 28, do your Bibles have a heading there? Something like incomplete conquest of the land or places not conquered or failure to complete the conquest. This is a passage discussing each tribe's failure to drive out or exterminate the enemies the Canaanites that were in their allotted tribal territory. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to draw your attention to a few verses, and I want to go quickly so that you can catch the, the theme. I do believe it'll be evident. Look in verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they didn't drive them out completely. And then look at verse 29. As a result, Canaanites lived in Gezer, and then notice this phrase, among them, they lived among the Canaanites, the Israelites did. Verse 30, Zebulun didn't drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahala, so the Canaanites lived among them, lived among the Israelites, and became subject, here it is a second time, to forced labor. Verse 32, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Then verse 33, look at the end of it. They lived, or the middle of verse 33, they lived among the Canaanites. Verse, and then the end of verse 33, they became subject to forced labor for them. And then the last verse, verse 35, the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Aijalon, and in Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. Okay, now I'm, I am kind of asking you to infer a little bit here, but why did the Israelites allow the Canaanites to remain? They wanted basically to turn them into what? slaves. I mean, who wouldn't want a servant, right? <laughs> so, if I said, why did the Israelites allow the Canaanites to remain? The simple answer is the Israelites allowed the Canaanites to remain because the Israelites wanted the Canaanites to remain. They enjoyed their existence. They, they enjoyed, it, it was pleasurable to them to have them, the Israel, it was pleasurable to the Israelites to have them around because then they would serve them. But for this to happen, it says repeatedly, we're reminded that the Israelites then had to live among them. Now, what effect do you think it's going to have on the holiness of the Israelites to be living among a people who were so wicked they were supposed to be exterminated? Just absolutely devastating to the holiness of the nation of Israel, and that's what happened. I mean, this is what contributed to them going from victory after victory to defeat after defeat. Now, let's talk about the spiritual application for us. And while we talk about the spiritual application, let's keep in mind our first lesson that the promised land or the Israelites' existence in the promised land is a picture or type of our spiritual lives in Christ. While Israel is in the promised land, it's a picture of our lives in Christ. For the promised land to be the rest that God desired it to be for his people— what did the Israelites have to do with the enemies? They had to defeat them. They had to drive them out. They had to remove them. There was no rest for the Israelites. There was only going to be conflict and turmoil as long as those enemies were allowed to remain. Now, similarly, for Christ to give us the rest that he desires for us, we must remove those enemies that we face, the world. We must defeat them, the world, the devil, the flesh. If we allow those enemies, or another way to say it is, we allow that sin to remain in our lives, all we are going to experience is turmoil and strife, just like the 
Israelites did. If we allow sin to remain in our lives, we are never going to have the peace or rest that God desires for us or that Christ would offer for us. Now, one vision for our church so that we would have spiritual victory, and even when I talk about victory, I think because of the prosperity gospel, there almost has to be some clarification given here. When I say to you, and I do stand by this statement, God wants you to be victorious, I have to qualify it. I don't mean it the same way Joel Osteen would mean it, right? I don't mean that he wants you to have a bigger house and fancier car and go on more exotic vacations and have a larger pool. I mean, he wants you to be spiritually victorious, which means victorious over sin, temptation, victorious through or during trials. So in a sense, I use the word victory, and I, I mean it oppositely of the way a prosperity um, you know, pastor might use it where he would say, God doesn't want you to have trials. And I would say, well, God does want you to have trials, but he wants you to be victorious through them because he wants you to grow and become more like Christ. And when we talk about spiritual defeat, what I mean is succumbing to temptation, succumbing to sin. And so for our church, our vision that we would have spiritual victories versus spiritual defeat is we must be holy. We must be separate from the world. We must not allow those enemies to creep into our church. Consider these verses, 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it is from the world. Now, if God would speak this strongly about the world, how terrible do you think it would be for him to see that same world creeping into the church. I would imagine that would be a, a devastating thing for churches and a terrible thing for God to have to witness happen. Now, Israel, one, one of the things that sort of saddens me, just to be candid with you about this, is when churches don't preach the word because they think it lacks relevancy, I, I don't think it could be more relevant to what we see, what's going on in our lives, or what's, what's going on in our culture, what's going on around us, because what happened here with Israel is exactly what we see happening they, with, with generations around us, generations that have, have existed before us or are existing at this time. The Israelites were being heavily influenced by the, by the ungodly nations that surrounded them, and we can be very influenced by the ungodly world that surrounds us. Israel is influenced uh, we could be influenced to embrace homosexuality. We could, we could become egalitarian, which is to stop denying the, or, or to um, deny the gender roles and distinctions that are very evident in Scripture. Egalitarianism, which is when I think, I think transgenderism kind of got its foot into the church or, or elite, into the culture and then into the church through egalitarianism, because egalitarianism is a denial of the of the lines that exist between men and women, the distinction between their roles and responsibilities. Egalitarianism says that men and women are identical in terms of their roles and responsibilities. A complementarian view, which we hold to, says that men and women are equal, but they have absolutely distinct roles and responsibilities in the church and in the home. So men and women do not live in the home and do the exact same things. They have different roles and responsibilities, and when they come to church, Men and women serve in the church in different, both valuable, but different ways because God has given us different roles and responsibilities. When that could be denied and egalitarianism could slip in the, in the door, it's only a little further to go to transgenderism, which is a denial of the genders themselves, which is what we're seeing. So first, men and women are the same is kind of that egalitarian philosophy. Well, so much so now that there aren't, you can be a man or a woman. The other day I was filling something out and I showed my children because it's the first time I, I can remember having to, having to do this. It asked me, am I a man? Am I a woman? Or did I want to check non-binary? And I showed this to my kids and I said, this is what you're growing up amongst. You don't see it as much because we've, you've been fairly sheltered in our church and in our family, but this is what is around us. And so these are the things that destroyed that can destroy our holiness or bring us from victory to defeat. Now, the real tragedy, because I want to be intellectually honest about this, one of the things that I, Christians should not say is we, we're seeing these things and we've never seen them before. Don't say that because you only have to go a few chapters into Genesis 
to see homosexuality, to see incest. You're only going to reach, as Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah, to see many of the same evils that we are seeing today. So, but what is different today? What is different is those evils creeping into the church. We can't say that we haven't seen them before, but we can say that we haven't seen churches embracing them in their leaders or tolerating them or embracing them in the ways that we are. That is the tragedy to see many of these sins finding their way into the church. And the question is, how did these churches come to embrace these unbiblical practices and beliefs? And basically, just like we're seeing here in Judges, they learn them from the world. They learn them from the surrounding nations being influenced just like Israel was. They did not have a biblical vision. They did not hold to the word of God. And so what we want to do is the opposite of Judges 2.10. We want to raise up a generation that knows the Lord and the work that he has done, and then how are we going to do that? How will we, how will we reverse the language of Judges 2.10 and raise up a generation that knows the Lord and the work he's done by, like you see in Lesson 2, faithfully preaching the gospel, faithfully teaching or expositing the word of God, and keeping the world out of the church. When people come into the church, I might talk about this a little bit more in the future, but just to kind of plant this seed, when people come into the church, they must appreciate that they have left the world. They must recognize that there was a line that they crossed when they went from out there to in here. And one of the worst tragedies that has probably damned more people to hell than anything else is when people have left the world, come into the church, but the church has blurred the lines between the world and the church to be more attractive to the world, and then people could not even tell that they were part of the church. And the truth is that they really weren't anyway, but now they're convinced that they're good people who are going to heaven because they're associating with something that calls itself a church. There must be a very clear line where when people enter, they see a distinction between what they're experiencing out there and what they're experiencing in here. That's another way to ensure that we're raising up a generation that knows the Lord and the work he's done. Now, I want to conclude by pointing you back to Christ, reminding you of the spiritual rest that you have in him. Hebrews 4.1, take your minds to those chapters about the spiritual rest in Christ that the promised land prefigured. Hebrews 4.1 says, the promise of entering his rest still stands let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it so interestingly we can come short of entering the promised land give me your attention just one moment i know i'm i don't know if i'm getting uh going too long here i'll get home and katie will tell me whether the sermon was long or not but right now i'll pretend like i'm not concerned about that <laughs> how close did israel get to entering the promised land very close they got up to the border of it and they didn't enter they did 40 years later but i'm talking about the first time under moses they got right up to the border of the promised land and they did not enter because of their unbelief everything that's happening there the author of hebrews reveals is a picture or type of what can happen in people's relationships with christ where they get very close to pressing into christ but don't and have you ever known people who have gotten very close come right up to the edge to the border but they have not pressed in the israelites were prefiguring that in numbers 13 and 14 and the author of hebrews was saying that that's what was happening to many of his readers and so he says press into christ and experience the spiritual rest that he offers you verse 2 the good news came to us just as to them but the message they heard it did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened for we who have believed enter those who have believed have entered that rest as he said as i swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world so if you're a believer i want to encourage you press into christ pursue all of the land that has been given to you possess all that you were strive to possess all the blessings spiritually internally speaking that you have been given through christ's work for those of you who are not believers your situation is this you're not even really in the wilderness. You're not wandering around taking another lap around Mount Sinai. If you're not a believer, you're still back in Egypt. You're not even covered by the blood of the lamb or the Passover that would allow you or provide your deliverance. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that for us, for believers, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. 
But if you're an unbeliever, you're still back in Egypt. And why is that fitting? Because when the Israelites were in Egypt, they were in bondage. They were in slavery. If Christ has not been your Passover, then you are still in bondage or slavery to death. If that describes you, you've never repented and put your faith in Christ. I'll be up front after service. I would love the opportunity to speak with you. Father, we thank you for Christ and what he's done for us, and we thank you for the promised land that you offer us through him. Help us to press into that and take possession of of all the land and all of the blessings that we have in Jesus. We thank you for the rest that he provides. We thank you that the, the Israelites had Joshua as their captain, but we have Christ as the captain and commander of our salvation. I pray, Lord, that we would enter by faith and that, and that you would give us the victories by the power of the gospel working in our hearts. And we would pray for any unbelievers who have joined us who might still be back in Egypt, who have not been covered by the blood of the Passover lamb, that you would deliver them, that they would repent and put their faith in Christ. We thank you for this time and ask that you would help us and that by your grace, another generation here at Woodland Christian Church would be raised up, that would experience physical, spiritual victories, that would know you, would know the things that you have done and that would remain holy and keep the world out of our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name.